Welcome to the new healthcare economy where everyone wins for a change. Employers, consumers, primary care physicians, outcomes, shareholders, even our communities all win with costs dropping 20 to 60%. This unstoppable direct contracting movement bypasses the big middles with their crooked game boards, devious rule book, rigged dice, and purchased referees. I'm Rob Barshop, and I'm glad you're here. Innovation is actually a science. I didn't know that until a few weeks ago, but it has 10 models that work, says Larry Keeley. He is our nation's expert. With over 14,000 engagements over 40 years, leading his company Doblin, which he sold to Deloitte a few years ago. His success rate exceeds 70% when clients follow the scientific systems proven out to make innovation happen. Well, CMS has an innovation office for 11 or 12 years called CMMI that has an 8% success track record if you want to be generous, but the actual is closer to really two to four. Their cost of their failures is what distinguishes this innovation office at CMS because we are talking about tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars of experiments of our taxpayer money. Now, if that's can't even get to the act of the experiment right, how are they gonna get the implementation right? So another example of how bigness far removes our leaders and our regulators from accountability and consumer centricity. I'm gonna to quote to you from an article, Brad Smith was a former CMMI director, and I'm gonna paraphrase a little bit here but he reported in the New England Journal of Medicine last year that only five of 54 models had cut Medicare costs. The vast majority, he says, of center's models have not saved money with several on pace to lose billions. Similarly, the majority of the models do not show significant improvement in quality. So if cost and outcomes are the two metrics, the former director there says, no go. His successor, Elizabeth Fowler, kind of doubled down and she confirmed his assessment in a different article in a January 2021 interview, and she says, now 10 years later, there is no silver bullet. We have four models that were certified to be expanded. I wouldn't say they're the most transformational. So this is, again, you guys, the leaders of these divisions of our federal government that's supposed to be innovating healthcare, saying that not only is there not a magic bullet, but outcomes aren't improving, costs aren't dropping, but they did have four that win. Let's talk about one of them that they were so proud of that they talked about. The home health value based purchasing model. Okay, that's interesting sounding, but it's a demonstration cut Medicare spending by, you ready for this? I wish I had my gong again, Jeremy, uh, 1%. Okay, $500 million, 1%. Okay, so I said 8% success rate, if we're being generous, if we're being accurate and saying, are the cutting costs and increasing outcomes? No, it's a two to 4% and it might actually be zero because I haven't seen the four that succeeded. One winner they claim, is shared risk value-based care. You can't breathe or look in any direction in a dark alley or light alley in healthcare without somebody touting value-based care is the answer and be all and end all, right? Value-based care, BBC. It's a breathless excitement around BBC could power a small city. What if we call value-based care what it is, a buzzwordy scheme for accountable care organizations to make out like bandits? Its value savings over 11 years in primary care is essentially nil over fee-for-service. And remember, this is one of the four of 54 experiments with the better outcomes. That's success. Okay, Edison failed 1,000 times to invent the light bulb, supposedly. 
just not with hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars, not their money to lose. These unaccountable bureaucrats whose giant experiments would never be tolerated anywhere else on the planet. I mean, to give you a context, CMS spends $100 billion a month. Medicare, Medicaid, Veterans Health is not CMS, but we spend $100 billion a month in HHS. That is more than every federal budget on the planet except for five. To put it in context, it's just money, but it's not their money. It's the point. Okay. So one experiment has clicked, and it clicked a long time ago. In fact, it's going to have its 30th birthday next year. It's direct primary care, which is a division, if you will, of direct contracting. Our guest knows a little bit about that. We're going to talk about that today. An almost 30-year-old model has saved 20 to 60% with measurably improved outcomes for jumbo and small employers and consumers. So at the micro level with individuals, the companies, it's working beautifully. And there's a mountain of evidence and case studies on this. So if you're a doctor listening, you really trust peer-reviewed research. At the Harvard Business School, not the Harvard Medical School, they trust case studies. We trust case studies. I'm not a doctor. So... Direct primary care gets no love from CMS because it's birth in the free market. Principles unencumbered and untethered by control by bureaucrats from bigs, big government, big middles. So direct contracts fire extractive bigs and celebrate consumers, employers, shareholders, community, all who win free of the tyranny of EHR. Kind of a hot code in July, I like to call it EHR. So today, this movement, just based on the guests on this show, are 20 million strong, and that's what I call an unstoppable movement. This is a future where we all win. Okay, looking forward to hearing what Mike Botta has to say. He's the president and co-founder of Sesame with a couple of gentlemen, one of which is David Goldhill, who is an entertainment leader for Universal's TV division, and he wrote a very seminal article in Atlantic, basically that here's how my father died, how healthcare killed my father. And it was just really talked about for years, still is being talked about. Mike has a PhD from Harvard in health economics. To add to that interesting career, he was McKinsey for five years in healthcare. He worked in the Obama White House in OMB. He worked at Brookings. He's worked for the state of Mass for their healthcare system. Everything that Michael does basically has led to his career to this sesame moment where his role is to oversee all sales partnerships and clinical relationships. So really excited, Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, Bron, thanks very much for having me, I appreciate it. Okay, I got a lot of questions for you, you ready? Sure thing, let's do it. First one is, you have any comments about what I said before we get going? Sure, I think uh, when CMMI was created, right, so which goes back to the first term of the Obama administration as part of the Affordable Care Act, the idea was to say, Let's push things down into the states. Like let's give let's give the states a way to experiment and hopefully find things that are meaningfully cost saving. But I think it's fair to say it's been pretty slow going. It's led to lots of different experiments, maybe fewer than people had expected, but nothing that yet really stands out to say, hey, this is fundamental and we should do this nationwide. So, you know, I'm ever an optimist and hopeful that we see you know major developments and sort of major discovery out of what CMMI is is out there doing. But you know, the jury's still out. If you were to hire the Larry Keeley, the guy I talked about at the top of the show, his company, well, Deloitte now charges 750 grand per phase one and a million 250 per phase two of their innovation project. And when they fail, they still have a 20 to 30% success rate. If the government's at one tenth of that, I don't know why they're not hiring Doblin 
or Deloitte in this case to uh, look at innovation as a science to see what works before they actually start throwing money at dartboards instead of darts. I don't know. It's just they're not using solid business principles to experiment with taxpayer money because they have no accountability. Who's going to fire Steema Verma or her successor if you know, the innovation office fails? Are heads going to roll? Hey, it, it's a good point. I think that a huge systemic issue in healthcare is the fact that, by and large, the person paying the bill is not necessarily the person who receives the service. And so you can think about that even when it comes to CMMI is, you know, ultimately, if you're not accountable to the person who's going to see the success or benefit, the, the success or failure of whatever you recommend, it's hard to get quick, successful outcomes. And that's true in healthcare, just like it's true in government. Okay, I want to talk about Sesame. Sesame for this show is an anomaly because it's a marketplace combined with direct primary care, combined with imaging, sourcing, you're sourcing meds, you're sourcing a lot of different services. Oh my God, the list is very, very long. It's an extensive list. Labs. I've not quite seen anything like Sesame. I mean, y'all raised $75 million around this idea. How does this different from, say, a traditional direct primary care offering that's behavior and ock health for employers? Sure. I, I can give you some of the context here. So if we, we go back to the thinking behind this. Some of it comes from the fact that you mentioned you know, my co-founder, our, our CEO, David. So David Goldhill is chairman of the board at Leapfrog Group, which publishes hospital safety scores for every hospital, uh, lots of different hospitals, ASCs across the entire country. And just to interrupt you, they give an A, B, C, D, F grade for hospitals. Right. And if you are what a D or an F, you're going to have a dramatically higher incidence of botch surgery, infection rates, readmission, versus you go to an A, you're going to have an substantially better cost. So let's go back to you talking about David. I'm sorry for interrupting. No, no worries. So uh, David uh, at Leapfrog Group, you know, they published those hospital safety scores. Uh, but, you know, in his, his day job, he was uh, an executive, sort of a media and telecom executive, and the person who was actually purchasing the benefits for his company and for his employees. I think, you know, it's pretty shocking to realize that, first of all, you know, premiums are going up, but not only premiums are going up, but deductibles are going up every year. So more and more of the cost of care is getting pushed onto employees. But we don't really give them a very good way to act on that. So you, you get this incremental patient responsibility, which is a great euphemism for you're going to have to pay more as a patient. But we don't really pair that with, hey, here's a way to actually make good decisions. Here's a way to actually shop for services in healthcare that are shoppable. And so the idea behind Sesame was really to say two things. One is we've got all of these Americans with actually a really strong incentive now to shop around for care because it's their money, like deductible, deductible spending. You know, when we're in the situation we're in, which is that four out of five Americans don't actually hit their deductible, and really all of your healthcare spending is deductible spending, if you think about it that way, and that means it's your own money. Let's, let's pause there. That's a very important point you just made. 80% are not passing from their deductible the risk onto the insurance company they hired to cover them. Yeah, so 80% of people in, in high deductible plans don't actually trip their deductible in a given year. Yeah, so they're, they're basically the insurance company. The insurance company is irrelevant at that point other than to process a lot of paperwork and misery. Yeah. Yeah, and so you've got this world where what the insurer then tells you is not only do we process your claims, but you know you have access to our network and our network has the best prices. I think, look, if you've ever tried to talk to a medical practice and say, hey, how much does this cost if I just pay you directly? I think what you found is that it's cheaper. It's cheaper than the, than the, the negotiated rate that an insurer has come up with. And I think discovering that was sort of the big unlock to say, well, why don't we build an actual functioning marketplace? And for a marketplace to be functioning, 
that means two things. So one is prices need to be available and actionable. The other is prices actually need to be competitive. Like people have to offer rates that make somebody want to shop on the marketplace versus just using what their whatever their insurer gives them. And that was the concept behind Sesame. So Sesame is a full scope healthcare marketplace. So think Expedia, think Airbnb from the travel world where you can select an option that is actually relevant for your needs wherever it's located with the types of amenities with the type of, you know, the level of service that you're looking for. You can pick days, you can pick a price, you can pay for it, and then you know it's going to be there when you show up. So let's talk about that price. There is what I call retail, um, there's wholesale, and then there's fair pricing. Fair pricing for imaging would be what a reasonable person would pay if their mother was a doctor, their wife was a doctor, or their husband was a doctor. They're going to pay, I equivocate it to buying a Coke at a movie theater. You're not going to buy a Coke at a movie theater. You'd rather buy it at the grocery store. You're not even going to buy it at the corner store because the markup is double from the grocery store. And it's the same with healthcare. If you can find imaging at an independent clinic, or if you can get a cash price from an independent lab or a national lab, like Quest or LabCorp, you're getting a fair price. You're not getting the best deal. You're not getting it wholesale, but you're getting a good deal. Is that what you're saying? Is your fair pricing marketplace? I think that these are fair prices. Exactly. And the reason I would do that is, you know, to go back to the, the economist in me, think about it this way. What we have on Sesame is essentially the marginal supply from lots of different elements of the healthcare system. So if you sell most of your services via you know, Medicare as your primary channel, Medicare is your main payer, but you don't sell all of them. You've got this incremental supply. You've got, you know, if you're an imaging center, you've got hours where you are staffed. So you have got your staff that actually operates the machinery on call, available, working, but they're not, you know, allocated to 100%. They're not completely full. Then you might say, okay, well, what can we do to get to 100% utilization? And the answer is, you know, you can service the part of the market that is price sensitive. And that is saying, I'll go to you if it's going to cost me less than it would cost me to go to the academic medical center imaging lab, whether it's inpatient or outpatient or whoever that might be. And so thousands of imaging centers, when they work with Sesame or our partners, what they're doing is listing really their marginal price. So their best price to get somebody in the door for a time slot. We're not saying you don't have to negotiate with Sesame to say, this is our price for everything at all times. You can vary your prices. You can list only those times that are available right now. So you can say, look, for somebody to come in tomorrow, here's the price for that. It's better than our negotiated rates anywhere else. We want to fill up this slot. We want to not waste the time and expense of keeping the lights on and keeping our MRI tech paid for that hour where he otherwise is going to be sitting around. So Mike, how did you come up with your offering? This is a confusing offering to me. Again, I'm, I'm used to seeing in primary care like the cafeteria pricing, you can get this for that. But you've got an interesting mixture. You've got skin doctor appointment, mental health, birth control. I get all that. Then you've got allergy doctor, OB-GYN, MRI, STI testing, UTI prescription appointment. Are you going for a younger market here? Or what, what, what are you designing this offering for? Is it a consumer? Is it an employer? Who are, who are you going after? I would think about it this way. We don't have anything. Let me, let me explain it that way. Sesame is a true marketplace. We are a two-sided marketplace. We serve consumers, and by consumers, I mean actual patients on one side, and we serve clinicians and healthcare providers on the other side. So we work with thousands of medical practices who are listing what they offer on Sesame. So if you are an individual independent physician, you are listing yourself and a variety of services that you offer and pricing, which you can vary whenever you want. You can price dynamically. You can 
change those by day of the week, hour of the day, time of year, whatever. If you're an imaging center, you list your availability, you list, again, the services that you offer your imaging center, and you can vary your pricing in the same way, time of day, day of the week, whatever. Uh, what's listed on Sesame is really what clinicians are providing all across the country. We're in all 50 states for a range of in-person care, uh, virtual care services. You can do telehealth on the platform. You can navigate to a local medical practice to see a clinician who's nearby you. Um, and we are facilitating that. So we are helping you list your schedule. We'll handle the scheduling for your patients. We will handle collecting payment on your behalf and then remitting that payment to you as the provider. But Sesame itself is not a medical practice. We are the, the plumbing, like we are the infrastructure. We yeah. had a bunch of great independent clinicians all over the country provide care directly to patients. So you're going after the consumer. You're not going after the employer. So we've started. Everything that we have done historically is all about the individual consumer. Okay. What has happened since then is we've had a bunch of employers reach out to us and say, hey, if my employees have a high deductible plan, they've got a deductible and they don't necessarily get great prices from the folks that they engage with. You know, when our, our TPA, our third-party administrator, whoever that is, is giving them negotiated rates. So why don't we give them access to Sesame and they can shop on Sesame for care under their deductible. We'll count it towards their deductible and they'll save money, which is great for the individual patient. And we as an employer will save money because it makes it less likely they'll trip their deductible. So increasingly, we see employers reaching out to do that. And those are the types of deals we offer. But at its core, what's consistent here is that Sesame really is a direct-to-consumer platform. A consumer, the individual patient, is the person who's selecting a clinician, like actually shopping for their, their care that's required, scheduling, paying, and seeing a doctor. So if you're a consumer listening to this show, thinking of engaging Sesame, let me give you a couple of numbers. Self-insured employers in America are about 145 million of us. That's the workers and their families. So that's not quite half America, but it's most of the people that are working today. And 80% of us make under 30 an hour. So the working force of America is basically an hourly workforce. So that's one number, 145 million to think about. Okay, big number. That's pretty much everybody listening. The second big number is 110 million Americans have medical debt on their balance sheet, their personal balance sheet. They owe money to a hospital more than likely. And a healthy percentage of them have debt over $10,000. 110 million is one third of America. And it's more than half all the adults because we have 65 million kids here and 330 million people. So those two numbers are telling us one thing. Number one, you probably work for a self-insured employer. Number two, your date with COVID is coming inevitably, and your date with medical debt is coming inevitably. You are going to someday go to an urgent care, 70% of which are owned by a hospital. You're going to someday go to an ER. Unfortunately, you can blink and pay $8,000 in an ER today. And you're going to be faced with medical debt, or you can shop with organizations like this, like Sesame, who can help you find the best rate as if you have a doc in your pocket or a doc in your family, right? Yeah. And Ron, I, I saw a statistic recently that said for, you know, the first time in a long time, the vast majority of bad debt that, you know, hospitals and independent providers are holding is bad debt from patients who are insured. So you might think that bad debt's just coming from people who are uninsured. That's not true at yes. all. It's yeah. because you've got so many patients who, if they're insured, they're in some form of high deductible plan or a plan with a really high co-insurance or copay who end up getting a bill, you know, three months after the fact for a lot more than they can afford. That's a great way to tie my two points together. And what you're saying is consumers 
basically are unaware. They think they go to work and have good insurance where they go, but because they, I think the majority of plans out there are now high deductible plans, right? Uh, so the, certainly the majority of plans include a deductible. So if you define a deductible as a thousand dollars or above, I do believe the majority have a high deductible, but we can go back and double check that. Okay. But you tied the two points in beautifully, which is you may have a great set of insurance documents. You may have a wonderful plan. You think because you work for a good company, but because you're likely in a high deductible plan, you need to have a shoppable service to help you find the best fair price yeah. for services out there. We definitely think so. I, I also think about it this way. So if you are a TPA, a third-party administrator, or if you're a traditional insurer, I think any, any of the names that you've heard of when it comes to health insurance, you are restricted in terms of how much profit you can make as a percentage of the premiums you take in. There's the medical loss ratio, the MLR, which says you have to pay out at least 85% of what you collect in premiums needs to get paid out in claims. So you've only got 15% to play with for everything. And so you can grow a bit by constraining costs, but you got to think that's a lot of work. The easier way to grow is just for everything to get more expensive, like inflate the amount that you charge in premiums. Therefore, you can take your, your percentage cut is bigger because the pie is growing. So everybody's sort of in this together in healthcare. Insurers don't want prices to go down too much because if prices go down too much, premiums stay flat or could even decrease, at which point they're going to make less money and their investors are going to be more frustrated because their percentage is off of a smaller base. So all of a sudden, that starts to explain a lot of the things that are strange in healthcare. So why is it that there are so few innovations in healthcare that actually lower the price of care? Well, who's got a really strong incentive to do that? Is that better for the clinicians who are billing? Is that better for the insurers who are collecting and making money off, off the VIG, essentially? Who's that better for? In theory, it's only better for the employers, but boy, if you're an employer, you got a full-time job. You're running a company. You're not thinking all day long every day about health insurance as much as you might wish you could. So all of a sudden, you know, if you're the employer, and God forbid, if you're the patient, like, there are very few people in the system whose goal is saying, how can I save you money? And how can I most effectively lower the amount that you spend on care? That's where a marketplace is really useful. So actually having a platform where people are competing in some way for your business, is the only way that really leads to more competitive pricing. Like people don't lower their prices out of the goodness of their hearts. They lower their prices because it's going to make them more money. It's going to win them more business. And so you have to have a platform where that actually happens. So let's talk about what Expedia uses for metrics. They're looking at the customer experience using Expedia, but they're not tracking, did you enjoy your stay at Hilton or did you enjoy your stay at Marriott? Are you going deeper and tracking how are outcomes improving or is that really not in your bailiwick? Well, I'm a data nerd. Like if you talk to me, you're talking to a guy who, you know, loves talking about healthcare data. And one thing that I can say is that, you know, when you work with as many patients as we do, you end up generating a lot of data. Part of that is patient reported outcomes. Part of that is actual quantifiable encounter data. And yeah, I, absolutely. We are using that to be able to measure and report out both to our clinicians and to individual patients on quality of care. So what, what can they expect from seeing Dr. A versus Dr. B? And I think that as the platform continues to grow and as more and more people keep using Sesame, we'll be able to do that. Fellow data nerd, I'm, I'm delighted to meet you. How are you doing today? Um, <laughs> but I also want to ask you, you've, you've been at it for four years. Is there any data that's surprising you on the upside or downside? Plenty of things. So I'm surprised how quickly the country has moved towards 
having a, a meaningful preference for virtual care. When I think of healthcare, I think of a big part of the benefit of healthcare is actually seeing a doctor face to face, like talking to that person in the white coat who tells you everything's going to be okay. And so we're in a world now where all of a sudden people find a lot more value than I would have expected from a virtual visit. And virtual visits are, they are really here to stay. Any practice is going to do more and more stuff virtually because it's less work for the patient. They don't have to get in a car, find parking, show up at the office and wait around. And providers really like it too. The, the only challenge to that is, look, if you are third-party payment, you're ratcheting back on reimbursement for virtual care because you don't want people overusing care because you're paying for it. But in this world where people are paying directly more and more, virtual care is becoming more and more popular because it's more convenient. Everybody likes it. That, that has been the speed with which that transition has happened, which of course is definitely aided by the pandemic when we did everything virtually. Uh, that was a surprise to me. Didn't expect that transition to happen so quickly. But that's kind of how most new technologies get adapted, which is really, really slowly for a long time and then all at once. Boom. Yeah, the pandemic went from 1% utilization of patients to 40% overnight with basically ghost offices that you couldn't go anymore and you didn't want to go to a medical clinic for a couple of four, four or five months. A lot of primary care suffered and a lot of it got bought up by the bigs. But something interesting has happened the last year. Every one of the BUCAs, the five biggest ones are now virtual care 50 states. Amazon, virtual care 50 states. I don't know if they now shut that down too, as well as uh, their other offering with Amazon care, but uh, Walmart, 50 states, um, CVS, 50 states. I would imagine Walgreens, and if they're not already in 50 states, they're going to announce they'll be in 50 states. But you're talking about virtual care basically is being promoted by retail, by big insurers. The hospitals are now starting to get into offering it to their communities. It's real, man. Have you looked at Babylon Health and seen what they're doing with their analysis of how many exams can be avoided by doing virtual? No, I haven't. Yeah, they're, they're an interesting company to watch, and I've had them on a couple of their senior people on the show. But what they're doing is they're finding somewhere between 85 and 90% of all exams can be handled by phone, and they have a 98% NPS. I mean, you, you got to give it to them that they're doing something right by intercepting the low-level stuff with artificial intelligence and chatbots. And then they have mid-levels that are handling the routine stuff. And then the more interesting stuff is going to their 1,600 doctors that are covering over 25 million people. And if you, if you do the math on that, that's the highest panel I've ever seen on the planet Earth. And their stock is growing and they're growing. I, I really think they're an interesting model, what they're doing, providing primary care scalability like nobody's ever dreamed of. Yeah, I'm excited to see more from what those guys do. Okay, so let's finish up by, are there any questions I should have asked you that we didn't? Uh, plenty, you know, we could always, <laughs> could always do an entire separate conversation on sort of you know, how the marketplace works, what we see, where clinicians are really innovating, which has been wild to watch and, and really exciting for patients to see the ways that clinicians are using this new way to reach patients directly to innovate the way that they practice. Okay. I think it's been absolutely exciting for us. Like our whole goal here is to make people who care how much their healthcare costs have a home where things are, you know, half price, but full quality. And that's, that's what we're doing at Sesame. Great. How do people find you, Mike, if they want to reach out? Sure. Well, you can find us at sesamecare.com for finding Sesame. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Michael Botta, which is B as in boy, O-T-T-A as in apple. Okay. And final question, and we will do this again for sure to talk about these other things. What, if you could fly a banner over America, would it say? <laughs> Does that have to be related to healthcare? 
I can think of lots of interesting things to say. When it comes to healthcare, I would say shop around, you'll save money. Great. Okay. Thanks, Mike. And we'll talk again soon. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.